five in the eye with Michael and Phil. It's news, but is it new? Hello and a warm welcome to Five in the Eye. This is episode 0354 of Colourful Radio's weekly news review show. And in London, I'm Phil Woodford. And this is me, Mike Lohajur in Wood, joining for via Zoom this week. We'll be in our top story. It's going to be pretty Patel's claim earlier this week that people who oppose their plan to send refugees to Rwanda offer no alternatives of their own. Five in the Eye. Highly controversial story. And for number two, we're going to look at a disturbing um, article in the New York Times. It looks at the trauma faced by those expected to kill remotely on behalf of the U.S. military. And what's story number three? Well, it's the man in America who told his bosses he didn't want a birthday party in the office for fear of triggering a panic attack. They ignored him and now face a bill for $450,000. For our fourth story, it's the heartwarming news that thousands of volunteers who signed up to help with the COVID vaccine drive have actually found themselves permanent roles within the NHS. And to finish the show today, it's President Macron of France in a last-ditch attempt to woo voters in the upcoming election against Marine Le Pen. He has unbuttoned his shirt and revealed a very hairy chest. Ooh la la, and that's this week's Five in the Eye. Five in the eye. Well, we're going to start the show this week with Pretty Patel's accusation that those who oppose her policy on um, sending uh, refugees to Rwanda offer no alternatives of their own. Um, this is a particularly barbed comment in the light of all the the criticism that she's received for a policy which many of us find morally reprehensible uh, as well as completely and utterly impractical. Um, She has decreed that following people's arrival in the UK, they would be um, potentially sent off to Rwanda, which of course is uh, thousands of miles away, right in the heart of Africa, um, following an agreement with the Rwandan government. And the, one, the thing I found most extraordinary about the policy, Michael, was that initially when it was announced, the kind of assumption of a lot of people was, well, people would go out to Rwanda and they'd apply for asylum in the UK. And then if they were successful, they would come back. But no, that wasn't the policy. The policy was that they'd go out to Rwanda and they'd apply for asylum in Rwanda. Um, I think, you know, there is something profoundly racist about this idea. There is there is that behind this, to my mind, is the is the idea that maybe the people who are arriving, who might be from places like uh, Syria, the Middle East, North Africa, and so on, that they would be better suited to a country like Rwanda than they would be to the UK. And that, to me, is a racist idea. And then add to that the thought that um, they're going to be transported perhaps thousands of miles from where they began their journey, thousands of miles south from where they began their journey in a country they, they have no relationship with whatsoever, a country which has an appalling record on human rights, which has been criticised not only by uh, the international human rights community, but by the UK government itself in the last year. This is one hell of a mess, isn't it? I didn't say one hell of a mess, Phil. It's, 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 it's been around 
for such a long time. It's a mess. We made ourselves. We're part of it. I know something that's been close to my heart since the, since since we've been started talking about refugees. Nobody escapes to something. They escape from something. And what steps are we taking to 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 sort them out at the roots? The problems at the roots in Afghanistan, in Syria, Vietnam, Yemen, elsewhere. How are we addressing these problems now? We can't solve every problem in every country, all of them. But we can have a go at solving some of them and show what we are doing. We are taking steps rather than you know solving the problem at our literally at our front door. Let's let's go back to where they come from. Examine why they're escaping and try and help and find out and try and do something. Because I've I found this whole attitude of this the whole attitude of this Tory government. Let me say up front, racist and divisive. You only look at the way they've tried to uh, help the Ukrainian refugees in contrast to the to the Syrian, Afghan, other brown refugees or brown skin refugees. And what's what's ironic? The systems they put in to stop these brown refugees are frustrating the white refugees. These the Ukrainians are really having a really hard time coming here. And you see how how systemically, um, I was going to say bankrupt, that's not the right word, how, how systemically the system is failing refugees. There's no system for people to come in naturally to the system. And so when they wanted to work for the Ukrainians, it's not working. So what, 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 for, as I say, what, what the, for me, the, the answer lies in sort, trying to sort out the problem with some compassion. That's what I don't get any compassion, some empathy for refugees, just no. So, Phil, it's, it's, it is an intractable problem on the one hand. On the other hand, let's, let's try and break it down. I get no sense of them trying to break it down. The thing that, you know, always strikes me as completely bizarre at the heart of this debate is that the UK obviously has survived and grown um, through waves and waves of immigration over time. I mean, uh, yeah, we wouldn't be the country we are today. I mean, it sounds like a trite thing to say, but we know we wouldn't be the country we are today if it hadn't been for generations of immigrants from all over uh, the world that have come to the UK in in the past. And now what do we have? We have desperate skill shortages in particular areas. We need people to work in areas like hospitality and agriculture. We've cut ourselves off from the European Union. And we need people to be working, helping to grow the economy, uh, people who are committed, maybe people who have indeed escaped from some life that offered them nothing, who are now willing to put in all that work and effort here in the UK and get some reward from it. Why would we not want those people? I, I, I find that, you know, I, I really, really struggle with that as an as an idea, because I I think we'll need more immigration um, as an economy moving forward as our population continues to age. Phil, I, I'm I'm with you, Phil, in that sense. But you know, I think fundamentally there's there's racist sentimentalities at work here. I've got I've got a, I've got a sort of racist sentimentality. Look, I, I'll share this with you. Look at Pretty Patel. She comes from immigrant stock. Her, 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 her family fled Uganda, and they were welcomed. They were welcomed by um, by Britain, and in, in a positive, open way. 
in, and this is in contrast to the way she's treating refugees. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I, I find it not without irony that Denmark, a country with a similar aggressive anti-immigration, anti-refugee policy as Britain, which is, and Denmark has been running it for the last 20 years, was doing some, trying some dreadful things to, 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 to limit Im, Im, immigration. I believe at one stage, they were taking the gold and jewelry from people as they came as refugees to pay for their um yeah, for, yeah. For, which for, which for which fact. has horrific associations back to the you know former european history and and so on exactly and and phil i don't think it's without irony that the equivalent minister to priti patel in denmark comes from uh, an ethnic minority his father was an ethiopian refugee mm-hmm. he married a danish woman so you've got you've got these Essentially, on the surface, people both both Pretty Patel and Matthias um, Tafesi, he's the, the minister in, in Denmark, should on the surface be sympathetic and understanding, with a little bit of compassion towards refugees. Quite the opposite. I think the, thing, the, 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 miss, the, the missing link, Michael. But the, the thing is, right wing ideology, which you know, once people embrace a right wing ideology, it is um, it is a philosophy always of if I'm comfortable, I pull up the drawbridge for everybody else. I mean, this would run through the whole kind of Tory philosophy of life, wouldn't it? I mean, Pretty Patel is indeed um, from you know Uganda and Asian heritage, but she's also a Tory. She's a right-wing ideologue. She believes you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, that she's probably thinking that she's perfectly fine. And, and, and to be honest, does you know, do these Tories care about anyone else other than themselves? You have to question that. I think you're right there in terms of the bootstraps, self-made and all that. Because and, and they stand up as figures who did it despite. And so they, they, they can... But they they can be seen as a kind of a pillars of of excellence of, of aspiration, and and in some ways it's quite sinister, Phil, because this, this is racism in 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 the raw, in the sense that he's okay or she's okay, she's one of us. But to prove they're one of us, they have to be as aggressively anti their own kind as possible to prove that they're one of the that they're, they're acceptable to um to to to, to the white majority. I find it. I find it deeply, deeply sad, and and suddenly they. they, 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 they if it's they, any consolation, if it's any consolation, though, Michael. I mean, I would say Pretty Patel's ratings as a politician are about as <laughs> low as any Tory. I mean, you know, and that goes across the board. You know, um, from people of all communities, they uh, she seems to be viewed with a lot of distrust and suspicion. If you look at her polling results, but but Phil, Phil to finish on this, as you you, you indicated at the start. This is a show. It's a it's it's a sham. It's 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 a come on. Mm. It's a distraction with Johnson and his government with all the with the party gate, the the, the party gate nonsense that's going on now. This is a way of deflecting and giving them some raw meat, as you say, ready for the for the elections coming up. Well, I, 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 I love what 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 um, one Labour commentator says. It's it, it, it's not about small boats. It's about sinking boats. It's about Boris's sinking boats that he's trying to revive to bring to the surface and and to and to to battle on mm. in the and, and, and let's be upfront for we're talking about in terms of Boris's future we're talking weeks months 
Yeah, he I, is gone. I, I, I and agree. And he's, he's hang, hanging on in. There, there, there is the argument that even if no one ever goes to Rwanda, what they've done is they've sent a signal in advance of the local government elections, which will kind of uh, stir up their core voter base. And it may just mean that the elections next month are not quite as bad for the Tories as people thought they were going to be. And lo and behold, that means Boris Johnson can stay on. Um, and he's only interested in himself, isn't he? We know that. So um, I, I, I'm sure that this this may well be at the heart of it all. Five in the eye. Moving on to story number two. Story number two is about drones. About drones. And, and one drone pilot in particular, it was in the New York Times. And it's quite a long article. What the Guardian would probably call a long read. And it talks about his journey, his descent from being a leading drone pilot into committing suicide in the woods in California. And it's deeply, deeply distressing story because it talks about his journey from being a, a successful pilot. He run, what was it, over 650 missions, 20 medals. You know, he was, he, he was a man at the center of the, I don't say the drone business, of the, the of, 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 of uh, America's use of drones. But what the article <clears throat> talks about, obviously his success, but also talks about the pain. Some of the things he had to do, he didn't feel comfortable. He would, he'd be tracking people for a couple of days. Someone a couple of thousand miles away through his, through his drone, through his drone camera. And he'd see their family life going to parties, taking the kids for a walk. And then the customer, because that was the name of the people who were, who, who, um, who, who commissioned the strike, commissioned the strike. Who, and that, and that could be, that could, that, that could be intelligence agents, or it could be military the commanders CIA, on the ground. The or CIA, whatever. whatever. And he would, he would, he would actually, he would literally just execute the person and he'd, he'd watch it on camera, watch it live. And, and he was a veteran of it. He was a veteran. He'd done this many times. But there were many times, several times, where he was found out the next day he'd shot the wrong man. Mm-hmm. He'd been given the wrong intelligence, so you'd have to go off and find another person. And he, he had to attend their funerals. That was all part of mission mission accomplished. And this had a this had a toll on him. A toll he ended up on, ended up on his marriage failing, drugs, and he was um, eventually taken to court court martial. But rather than, rather than suffer the consequences, he ran away, literally ran away to the woods and recorded a dying message to his family, to, to, several, to each member of his family uh, about his life and how frustrated he was. And he didn't want to go to prison. And he shot himself. You know, Phil, i got to share this with you. I, I thought back in the day when I was, when I was, uh, there was a potential for me to be a fighter pilot. I was, I say, I was always anti, not anti, fighter pilots, because I saw the future was in drones. This is back in the, when I was leaving university. I thought the future right in pilotless aircraft. You didn't need the fighter pilots. That was the future. And because fi- fighter pilots were lauded in terms of, they were, you know, the Top Gun kind of character. And I thought the future lay in this, but this, it's not. Because there's a price to pay for that. Because at the end of the day, well, we're human. There's a compassion factor here. You know, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think everything about this story is very, very disturbing. And um, the, the, the whole idea that you are kind of 
watching people in real time. It's a little bit like playing a computer game remotely from a bunker in the desert, except in this computer game, there's no reset. And in this computer game, the people that you're targeting are real. And um, there's something very, very disturbing about it. Um, particular, but, but you could argue, couldn't you, that actually this is the kind of military action which forces soldiers to face the consequences of what they actually do. There are Russian sailors at the moment in the Black Sea, Michael, who are firing uh, cruise missiles from ships towards targets in Ukraine who never see the people that they're killing. The, the, mm -hmm. the missile goes off. It destroys people just as much as those drones destroy people. Uh, but they sleep easy because they never see it. Isn't there an argument that says, actually, if military people were more confronted with the reality of what they've done, mm. there would be fewer wars? Fergie, so, I think you're on the money there, because I, I remember reading um, the story of Berlin, the fall of Berlin to the Russians and, and during, the, during the Second World War. And the Russian soldiers were surprised to hear the babies crying like their babies because they've been brainwashed to believe that they were a different form of animal, that they weren't human. These Nazis were not human, or these Germans weren't human. So they were not like you. They mm -hmm. had to be destroyed. And we just fast forward to today and Putin with his denazification, with this dehumanization of people. You create this sense of other, not one of us. And so they, 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 they need to be destroyed. And when, but when you see them, as, as those German soldiers, as those uh, Russian soldiers saw the Germans in the First World War, Second World War, they are like us. We're human. So this, 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 this story really underlines this, this common humanity. And if people are brought to, brought to bear on and realize what it is or confronted by it, then maybe we, we, maybe we can stop wars. Mm -hmm. You know, when you when we look at what, because this is happening right now in, in um, Ukraine, where death at a distance, where you've got no, literally no human involvement. Now you see, when you're the human watching it live on the screen, the video game, real time, and you get some sense of connection. If I, I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you right on the spot here, Michael. You probably won't like this question. I'm going to ask it anyway. C can you see a justification for the use of drones in this kind of one, I mean, this, I mean, you know, President Obama was criticised for, uh, you know, promoting quite heavily the use of of drones during his presidency, and it was almost like, although he didn't seem to be ostensibly involved in in war, um, there was a kind of a clandestine, ongoing program of targeting people, and we know that you know they targeted Bin Laden and 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 so on. Is there a justification? What if someone said to you, okay, this drone program, it took its toll on the, the people who were firing the, the weapons, and sometimes the wrong people got hit. But in the process, hundreds more lives were saved than were actually lost. Does that make it morally justifiable? I, 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 that, that's a big question, Phil. A big question. And when you look at, uh, I, I would argue, and you, and you get some sense of my answer when I say, have all avenues been really exploited? They've gone down to see if we can find an answer to this problem. We can sort this problem out. Have you, have you, have you, 
you exhausted everything. You, know, you examine how you can reach out to these, these people or this person to try and make a difference, to try and bring him into the tent or hear him into the tent. But the, and, but, and if, if, if that's failed, then there comes a time you have to decide. You know, it's all about the justified war. Is war justified? And for me, war is indiscriminate killing. War is indiscriminate. As you see now, we're just sending a, a cruise missile into a, into a public area, into a public building, and destroying whoever on the, on the defense that, they, 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 that this could potentially be a, a, a military target, when plainly it isn't. So you have to weigh these things up. And, and I was going to say it's above my pay grade, but if, if all avenues have been exhausted, then I feel it seems to be the only way. If it's going to have the results, if you believe it's going to have the results uh, of, of stabilizing the situation, bringing some sense of normality, Bin Laden a case in point. You know, is it, did Bin Laden have to go? You know, well, we are, well it, it's... Uh, he was a symbol, wasn't he? Of, of he was a symbol of, of that terrible attack on America in two thousand one, and, and and Obama felt that uh, he had to go uh, as a as a way, I guess, of restoring a sense of American uh, pride and, uh, and, and 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 so on. I mean, these are really, really intractable moral. Issues, but it, uh, I think we have to say that um, it, the judgment involved in this is enormously tortuous. Um, I, I certainly wouldn't, you know, I, you know, I wanted to go into politics originally. When I look at decisions like this, you know, this is the kind of thing that makes me glad I never did. Well, I'm sure we may come back to issues like this in 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 the future because this is the uh, this is unfortunately the future of modern warfare but let's for the moment move on to a completely different story which is story number three live in the eye so our third story this week is about a man in america who um was someone who suffered from panic attacks uh, uh, and um, in, had a kind of uh, nervous disposition there was a there was a culture in his office of um, organizing parties to celebrate people's birthdays, which you might think is a nice idea. But he, he'd said to his bosses, look, I don't want this party because I'm not good in situations like this. It's going to trigger uh, one of my panic attacks. Um, they carried on. They gave him a surprise party anyway. Uh, it did trigger one of his panic attacks. And um, subsequently, uh, he lost his job. And he sued them and the company lost and they are going to have to pay out nearly half a million dollars. No, when they say he lost his job, they went back to him and complained to him. Why weren't you happy? We've done this. We've given you a good time here. You should be happy. And mm. that's what, that's what saddened me about, about this story. It was about them, their unhappiness. Here's unhappiness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've made you've made us unhappy. It's. I mean, it it, it, it does. You know, it raises a question, doesn't it, about this whole world of kind of enforced happiness and jollity in 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 work environments where where people are expected to conform to various rituals and 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 so on. You know, we we've all got to bake a cake and we've all got to bring it in today yeah. and all this kind of stuff. You know. 
you're going to be a team player, one of us. No, maybe that, that, has, that has its role, has its part. But if you're doing your job, you're contributing your bit to the team, happiness is that part of the job mandate? <laughs> I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, calm down. You're delivering for the team. How you deliver it, that, that's your job. How we interpret it. You know, it's not for us to be, it's not for you to make us happy. It's not us for you happy. We're here to do a job, literally. Mm. So these people being upset that their largesse, their partiness, wasn't, you didn't celebrate it. Yeah. Come on, Phil. <laughs> the, 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 the feelings of fun were not reciprocated. I mean, I, you know, but I mean, he, he made clear in advance, he knew what this, this company yeah. liked to do. And he said, look, you know, I know you do this kind of thing, but I, it's not for me. And they, they ignored him. Um, and as such, um, there, there, you know, I think the, the company really should have taken heed of that, um, particularly because he had a medical condition. You know, um, it wasn't just him saying, look, I don't like this culture. He was saying, I get unwell in these kinds of situations. Uh, and, and, and I think that's the critical thing, probably. I think they might have got away with it if it just been he didn't like parties. But it turned out anyway, Michael, this probably must, must, must have been the most expensive staff party they ever threw. Uh, with $450,000 fine. I wonder if the happened. I guess it's not going to make many happier. The fact that, you know, that, that um, at least, well, he's gone now. He's gone. And, 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 and they're left with the bill, as you say, for almost half a million dollars. You know? And it seems sad that they wouldn't let him be who he was. They had to impose their idea of what they, what they see as happiness. And I guess one man's meat another man's poison in that sense. Yeah. You know, you, you, you can't have it always. You can't have it always. So no, I was I, I was 100% on his side, particularly as, he, as he'd said up front, you know, I don't want one. I don't want anything to do with this. And, and then they, 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 they put it on him. You know, it's, it's, um, it, it's, it's no different from those people, you know, people who don't like, who, who have uh, an allergic response. You know, peanut response, you know, you don't give them peanuts, a peanut cake or something. You know, you know what it's going to do to them. So in the same sense, you know the consequences. I guess part of the problem here, though, is because it's not a, a physical thing, it's a mental thing. People don't appreciate it. So now no, I'm I'm 100% on, on, on his side. Five in the eye. Story number four. This is uh, some 11,000 volunteers, the NHS who did the, the jabs, gave us our jabs during the COVID days, they've got permanent jobs within the uh, NHS. And I remember, remember going for my jab, I put my suit on and my proper leather shoes for the first time in a uh, year when I, when I went to have my jab. And it was a really, it was a really enjoyable day. The, the, the volunteers were just brilliant people. And it's great to see some of them have moved on into the health service. There was one lady in the article, she was, um, she was, uh, um, a makeup artist and her job uh, on the pandemic, her work had dried up. And, but then she saw the opportunity when, when the pandemic was over, well, not quite over, but she thought it was, she could go back to her old job. She saw opportunities in the health service and they moved on. And it's great because they are, there's a many vacancies in, within, within the NHS right now. And I'm seeing them filled by such, by volunteers and as I say, the volunteers I met were just brilliant. Phil, do you remember when you had your 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 uh, your 
Yeah, yeah, yeah no, you remember, you know, I remember was, certainly for my booster. Happy and positive. Yeah, certainly for my booster. Uh, and I, I remember there was quite a big queue down the road and there's people kind of checking you off and everything. And these guys are, are volunteers. And yeah, there was there, there was a there's a good upbeat feeling to it. I mean, you, you remember this, of course, from your volunteering 10 years ago at the uh, 2012 Olympics, oh. which, which which I know was a, a formative experience in, in Mr. Orojuru's life. Uh, totally, he, totally. Uh, but you know, I, I reckon there's a couple of categories of people here. There's the the ones like you say who were forced out of their jobs in the pandemic. So, you know, you mentioned the makeup artists, cabin cabin crew, and people like this who couldn't fly and and and, and so on. They got drafted in, and then maybe they've discovered that actually this is quite you know quite an interesting world. And then I suspect there's other people who who maybe were just attracted anyway, always been slightly attracted by the idea of medicine and healthcare and, and and so on and they thought this was a good opportunity to to do something in that in that way perhaps they you know perhaps a number of these people were already inclined towards this kind of career so they'd never had the opportunity before i guess you're right because i remember when i was in the olympics the, the, the camaraderie the team spirit that comes when you've got one mission as a group well, our mission was to get the athletes onto the onto the the, the, the floor, onto the field, on, into the pool, whatever the athlete the athlete could perform to be their best. This is what was happening with the, in, when the pandemic get everybody jabbed. There was one mission. We were all we were all united in achieving that, and that sense of teamwork, camaraderie, coming together to make one thing happen is is to be part of that. Is it is a is a really well. A life-changing thing, as, as you've seen here with these people. So no, I, I think that's a, that's, that's a really brilliant story. Five in the eye. Our final story this week takes us to France. If you if you were expecting if you're expecting our French bureau chief this week, Julie McDonald, who we did trail last week, we decided actually we're saving her insights on the French election until next week when we've got the results, and hopefully Julie will join us then. But um, we noticed that President Macron in a in a bid to 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 make an appeal to voters in the run up to um, this weekend's election, he uh, unbuttoned his shirt, Michael, in a way that was quite revealing, oh, didn't he? he? Is is this guy really the sex symbol that he imagines himself to be? Do you think some French, <laughs> some French voters might have been stirred by this uh, yes, image yes. to 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 cast their ballot in his favour rather than Marine Le Pen's? You, you got to find you got to find your base wherever you can, you, and you got to stoke it whatever way you can. I mean that picture, it just so looks so posed. <laughs> you know, what well, the article talked about Bert Reynolds and you know Sean Connery as James Bond. You know that the macho man in charge. I have to admit, I was minded by Johnson on that tripwire with the Union Jack trousers on, the clown, the nonsense, you know, the compare and contrast. The clown that's Johnson to the macho man that's uh, Macron, but you know they're all it's all these 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 male and it's predominantly male politicians who do this kind of thing. You know what about Putin on that horse and that gun? You know, yeah, remember yeah, that yeah. chest? Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose. My, Come on, <clears throat> yeah, my associations were, were were kind of perhaps a bit more back to Putin and uh, the, the, this kind of you know touting yourself around as a. But he he Macron's done it in a sort of distinctly Gallic kind of way, laid uh, sort of laid back with his shirt under. Whereas Putin's more about kind of wrestling bears and 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 sort of fishing <laughs> for shark fishing for sharks and things, isn't he? No, no, no. You're right. It's, it's, it's kind of there's, there's, 
if can you have comparative macho-ness? <laughs> well, I, I, I think Putin is at one extreme in terms of, you know, man in the wilderness, you know, biting the heads off bears and that kind of thing. Whereas Macron, he's the cool guy by the pool there doing his thing, having, having a dry martini, shaken, not stirred. You know, that kind of character. Of the two, Phil, I must admit, I prefer the Macron kind of Macron. Yeah, so I, I think so. And I think Macron <laughs> would probably be... Uh, less inclined to get involved in genocidal wars as well. And so we're probably a bit safer with him, aren't we? I guess if one can be smooth yet hairy, Macron is smooth yet hairy. (laughs) And in contrast, Putin is smooth but hairy. Five in the eye. Well, that's it for another week. If you want to see pictures of me and Michael with shirts unbuttoned, don't go looking on our Facebook page because, in fact, that's where we post some of the stories we're considering for next week's show. We really do hope to have our French bureau chief, Julie, Julie, Julie MacDonald, with us next time to give us her appraisal of the presidential election. But for now, this is me, Michael Ohujuru, thinking, thanking for you, thinking and thanking. Thank you for tuning in today and saying, as ever, if you have been, thanks for listening. And this is Phil Woodford reminding you to keep an eye on the news as you never know what we'll be discussing on next week's Five in the Eye. Goodbye. Five in the Eye with Michael and Phil. It's news, but is it new?